Here at Christ the King Church, we're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in the historical foreign faith. And we're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And before we turn to Exodus chapter 12 and Mark chapter 14, I'm going to pray for us once again. So let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ to ask for illumination by the Holy Spirit as we open the scriptures. O oh Lord, how we love your word. May it be our meditation throughout our days. Your commandments make us wiser than our enemies, for your law is ever with us. Those who dwell <clears throat> on your word have more understanding than great teachers who are without it. And even the young in our midst who know you keep your word. Even they can understand more than the aged who do not know you. To say these things, Lord, is to boast, but it is to boast in your grace alone. It is because of the work of Jesus that we can say these things are true. It's because of the reliability and, and faithfulness, the perfection of your word that we can declare these things to be true. Lord, may we be encouraged by the scriptures this morning in such a way that our feet are held back from evil. Use the truth of this story to work within us so that we might not turn aside from the principles that you are teaching us. How sweet are the words of the gospel to our taste, sweeter than honey. Through your precepts we gain understanding so that we may hate every false way. We pray all of these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, starting in Exodus chapter 12. And may God bless the reading and hearing of his scriptures. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole, con the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we turn once again to the Gospel of Mark. Today we start our way through chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> Often as we read the scriptures, in various passages we can find literary, pas- uh, literary patterns in the text known as chiasms. R.T. France, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Mark, provides a very general and broad chiastic structure, literary structure for this passage. But upon taking a closer look, we can diagram a much more ornate and developed structure, a pattern in the text. Remember, the authors of Scripture, usually when they have a chiastic structure in the passage, they want to draw your attention to the center of the chiasm for the main point of the idea. So let me just kind of very briefly, this, it'll really help if you have one of the sermon outlines from over there to kind of see how the structure goes, see the, the connections between one verse and another. So here's how the structure works out. At the very beginning, in verse 1, you see that the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to kill Jesus. How does the passage end in verse 11? It ends with Judas doing what? Seeking to betray Jesus. Verse 2, the chief priests and scribes have a problem, right? They have a problem, and that's the people, right? They can't kill Jesus because they're afraid of the people. Well, how does it begin to close in verse 10? The solution, the unexpected solution to their problem arrives in Judas, third item, or or in the chiastic structure goes A, B, C, and so on, right? So this is C, right? Verse 3, there's there's Jesus and all these people in the house of Bethany, and the the, the oil or the the perfume, the, the ESV says ointment, the ointment starts to cover Jesus starting with his head, right? And then the parallel to that is found in verse 9, when Jesus seems to, to describe the gospel going over the whole world. Okay. In, in verse 4, this is item D in the chiastic structure, we see someone objecting to the end of this oil, or rather the use or end goal, end purpose of this oil. It's wasted. And the parallel to that is found in verse 8, when Jesus says that the use of this oil, the end of the oil, was a good thing. It's not a waste. It's a good thing because it's anointing him, not for ministry, but for burial. Right? He's, remember, he's already been baptized in, in, or anointed, rather, for his messianic ministry by John the baptizer at the very beginning of the book. Now he's being anointed for his death. And then here's the next parallel. In verse 5, they're like, what about the poor? Right? What about the poor? This could have been sold for the sake of the poor. 
And the parallel to that is Jesus in verse 7 saying, yeah, what about the poor? You can do good for them anytime you want. They're going to be with you a very, very, very long time. So do good for them, right? And then here's the main point found right there, dead center. It's letter F in the chiastic structure. Here's the the big uh, thing to draw your attention to. Jesus commending this woman for her actions, okay? So it is Jesus commending this woman for her act of worshipful devotion that is the highlight of the text, okay? And as we tackle this passage this morning, I want to think about the elements of the story in relationship to the house that's at the very center of the story. So we're going to start by considering the things that are happening in this text outside of the house, and then we're going to focus on what's going on inside of the house, and then we're going to move way, way, way beyond the house and try to consider how we we can see implications and make applications for today. So does that make sense? So let's start outside of the house. When we look in verse 1 and 2 and verse 10 and 11, what do we find going on in this text outside of the house? Simply put, condemnable acts of evil. Evil men plotting evil things. They are planning nothing short of treasonous regicide. Regicide is the killing of a king. I first learned that when I was in middle school. I was playing the game Age of Empires, and there was a setting on the game, regicide, where every building and every soldier in the game of your opponent could be dead, but the king is still running around and hiding in the woods. The other team is still alive and well. Okay. So that's what regicide is. It's the, that's what they're plotting. They don't believe Jesus is the king, or maybe they believe it and they don't really, they don't really like it that he's, he's the true king of the Jews, but that's what they're doing. This is treason. These are covenant people. These are not pagan Gentile outsiders, folks. These are covenant people who know the scriptures. The scribes are professionals in handling the Old Testament. They know the Messiah is coming. Jesus has come on the scene declaring that he is the Messiah, doing Messiah things, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, driving out demons, fulfilling all these Old Testament uh, promises and prophecies. And yet here they are plotting his death. So let's, let's talk more about the chief priests and the scribes here. They want Jesus dead, but what's the holdup? Well, the people. There's this big feast going on, and there's all these people, all these out-of-towners that aren't usually there that have made the pilgrimage for this big feast. Now, what's interesting is that verse 1 separates these two feasts, and they actually are uh, different things, right? There's, uh, there's the Passover, and then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They are technically two separate things. But in the first century, according to theologians and commentators uh, on the Gospel of Mark, very rarely in the first century do you see people writing as if these are two different things. It's just kind of one big long party. They kind of smush them together. It's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all one thing. Okay? So as you heard in Exodus, this is taking place in the first uh, month of the Jewish calendar. By our reckoning, the month of Nisan would be April and May. So like the end of April, beginning of May, that was their first month. And remember the way that their days work. A new day by Jewish reckoning begins at sunset. So the way that this worked is that Passover was on the 14th and 15th of the month, and then the the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th and ended on the 21st. So by our reckoning, here's what it would look like. On Thursday, Thursday afternoon, they'd slaughter the lambs, and then Thursday night they would begin to uh, partake of the Passover meal. But by their count, by the way they they regulated time, that was two different days because the sun would go down and they'd be eating at the very beginning of the next day. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody's tracking with me. Lots of nods. That's good. So in most people's minds, one big party. 
And this Passover meal, this is one of the feasts that people would make a pilgrimage. Remember, there's several dispersions throughout the Old Testament. Lots of Jewish people getting sent all over the world. This is one of the feasts where they're like, I'm a pious Jew. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm taking my family. We're going to shut down shop in the Greco-Roman Empire. We're going to go to Jerusalem for this feast. It's very important. So there was a lot more people in town. By some counts, you, you kind of notice how... This, you could probably imagine this would make me feel crazy as a person reading these different numbers. One guy says, look, there's probably like 30,000 people that normally lived in Jerusalem, but for this party, there'd be like 180,000. And then there's other rabbinic accounts of the first century that say there would be up to 12 million people in town for this party, and they would slaughter 1.2 million lambs. That's quite the gap. I mean, 180,000 people is a lot of people, but it's not nearly as much as 12 million. Josephus uh, predicts about 3 million people. Uh, William Lane in his commentary said there'd be about a quarter of a million people in town for this party. Here's the point. I don't, I don't really know what the actual number was. The point is, there was this many people on, an, on a normal everyday Thursday in Jerusalem. And then when this party came around, there was a whole lot more people. And a lot of them, remember, Galilee isn't, isn't in Judea, right? This is where Jerusalem is. It's in Judea. Galilee is up just north of them in the nation of Israel. That's where Jesus is from. He's not welcome in his hometown, but everybody else in the region pretty much likes Jesus, except for the Pharisees, right? Uh, but he's a pretty popular guy in Galilee. And these people right up the road, this would be like Kentucky, we're in East Tennessee. So the people from Eastern Kentucky, they've made their way down to Knoxville for this party. And the scribes and the chief priests know this. There's a lot of Galileans in town. We can't capture and kill Jesus. There'll be a riot, right? So here's two pastoral notes on this. One, these men operated covertly, as the New American Standard said, or in stealth, as the ESV says. That's how they were plotting to kill Jesus. It was in back rooms. It was very quietly. It wasn't this open thing. They weren't putting up billboards and saying, hey, do you want to be a part of the plot to kill Jesus? No, that wasn't how it was working. And that's it. there's an interesting correlation between that and arson, isn't there? This is the way that sin often creeps in. The, the devil never approaches people, you know, in all red with horns and the tail and the pitchfork. That's not how sin and Satan works. That's not how our flesh draws us towards sin. It's much more stealthy. Second note, it's the fear of godly people in that culture that restrained them from rushing to the sin as quickly as they might have. Right? They are freaking out that Jesus is going to be preaching to a packed house for the next eight days, and they're going to wait until that's all over to kill him. Because then all of these Galileans will go home, all these other people will leave the city. But while they're all there, they are restrained in their sin. That's important for us to remember as we live in a society that seems to become increasingly more godless. It's the active presence of good, godly people that can restrain evil. So how does this happen? Because I just told you that the, the presence of all these people restrained them. Well, Judas Iscariot, right? Judas Iscariot comes out of the woodwork, and they are glad. The text tells us that they are happy that Judas comes and volunteers. He's not recruited. They don't pull him into a back alley on Thursday afternoon and say, look, we want to recruit you, and we'll pay you. No, he comes to them, and they're like, well, we'll give you some, some change for your, for your service here. And in Mark, Judas isn't really a big-time character. He's much more prominent in the book of John. And yet, Mark's gospel makes it clear that this could not happen without Judas Iscariot going to the chief priests and, and the scribes and helping them pull this off. So here's, here's two notes I want to make. The first is this. The most technical term for betray in, is not used in the gospels. 
except for once, and that's when Judas is described as the traitor. The word that is most often translated as betray into English is not the most common technical Greek term for betray. It's rather a word that means to hand over. And I found that interesting. And as I looked at this Greek word and and the very wooden definition of handing something over, handing someone over, I couldn't help but notice the similarity that it has to the Greek word for tradition, which means to hand over teachings or to hand over doctrine. Church, listen, there's no neutrality here. We're going to go one of two ways. We are either going to hand down the teachings of Christ to our children or we will hand over Jesus. We will betray him. We will leave him to the culture and we will abandon him. How often in Western history has good, has godly things that belonged in the realm, the sphere of Christianity and the church been handed over by an insider? I can't help but think as I'm listening to the book Masculine Christianity by fellow teaching elder Zach Garris, uh, he talks about first wave feminism and how many people, how many women involved in first wave feminism, which was not neutral or good, by the way. It was bad and it had ill intentions for society from a Christian perspective. But many of those women belonged to the visible church or professed faith of some kind in Christ. They were actively involved in handing over godly gender roles uh, to, to the enemy, to Satan. Also, psychology. If you read the book by Brooksy Holyfield, it's a wonderful church history book. Very dry, very technical, but it's very, he writes it very well. It's called The History of Soul Care in America. And he traces out for you how from the 1600s till today, the church used to do psychology, meaning soul care, the study of the soul. And that used to be the business of ministers, of pastors, right? And eventually the church said, we're going to hand that over. It wasn't in an instant. It was slowly over time. We're going to hand that over to the secular academic world. So when people try to separate theology from psychology, they're speaking like a modern person who doesn't understand the history of psychology in the Christian church. Because the Puritans did not see a, a, a divide between psychology and theology. It was practical theology. It was the care of people who are eternal and have souls. But slowly over time, the church said, we'll hand this over. And then we realized, "Uh uh-oh, we need to figure out how to care for the souls of people Monday through Saturday. Can we have it back? Yes. But now it is a totally abominable version of it. You're not getting back what you handed over. You're getting a goofy, humanistic, hyper-secularized version of it. Does that make sense? And we could, we could go down this rabbit trail for hours throughout history. The church again and again has said, here you go, mercy ministry. That's another one, right? Education, educating people in the community, taking care of the poor. Slowly over, the, over time in the Western world, the church said, yes, government, yes, secular humanitarian organizations, just take it all. We'll hand it over to you. And when you do the research, oftentimes it is Christians, or professing Christians, I should say, who are leading the way of handing that over to the world. So why does Judas do this? What's his motivation? Mark gives us zero, nothing, not. Remember, he's the guy who's just moving real quick. But here's, the, here's oftentimes the, the best guesses that we have, right? Disappointment, disdain, diabolical, right? He's just disappointed. He realizes what Jesus is all about. He realizes this isn't what he signed up for. He's disappointed with Jesus. Jesus isn't going to knock Rome out of, of Jerusalem like he thought. He's not going to set up some sort of earthly political kingdom and make Judas really important in it, and he's disappointed. Other people think, look, he, he's, he's just seen what's happened. It's the last straw. 
He thinks Jesus is weak. He has disdain for Christ. So he wants to hand him over. And other people are like, look, he's just a, a devious deceiver from the start. It's always been about Judas. And that seems to be mostly the case. These other two are probably sprinkled in, but John's gospel makes it very clear. He was always stealing from the treasury. He was in charge of the money for some reason. And he was always uh, finding a way to put his hand in the money pot and, and skim a little bit off the top for himself. He was all about the money. Right? But I want to make it clear, lest we look at Judas and be like, man, I just can't imagine. These three things, disappointment, disdain, and deception, these are still what lead to apostasy today. People, people stop trying to make excuses for the Bible and they just read it as it is and it disappoints them. Because they're like, well, I can't really be a Christian and hold the worldview that I hold. I have to give up one or the other. Right? They, they, they come to their sense and realize exactly who the Bible says Jesus is, and they have disdain for him. This is old. This is archaic. I don't like what the Bible has to say about gender roles or sexuality or my money or my career or insert a word here. I don't like it. I've got disdain for that worldview, so they abandon the Christian faith. And then other people, as we see in the writings of the Apostle John and 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, some people are just deceptive deceivers from the start. They're never really genuine. They come into the church under the guise, uh, under false premises, in order to lead people astray. So we don't really know exactly why, from according to Mark's gospel, what, what Judas's motivation was. It's probably a bit of all three of those. He hated Jesus. He was disappointed that he wasn't going to get out of Jesus what he thought he was going to get out of. And it's pretty clear from John's gospel, he was just a mess from the start. He was just a deceptive man from the very beginning. So that's outside the house. Pretty gloomy, not so chipper situation, isn't it? What about inside the house? What do we see inside the house? Well, we see one truly commendable act of sacred devotion. Here's the house. It's the house of Simon the leper. By the way, probably a title to distinguish him. He's probably not actively, um, you know, dealing with leprosy. Otherwise, they wouldn't all be sitting in his house eating with him, okay? That's how it worked in Jewish culture. So this is probably a title to distinguish him from the other Simons in the culture. Very common name, right? He, you could imagine that as he, he maybe got a hold of Mark's gospel later, that he kind of objected. Really? Right? You couldn't say, like, Simon of Bethany or, like, Simon. You couldn't, like, attribute, like, my, my vocation, my job, like, Simon the you know, the copper smith or blacksmith. No, Simon the leper, huh? Thanks, Mark. But he lived in Bethany. His home was on the far slope of the Mount Olives. This is a nice little Airbnb spot as you're getting ready. Remember, there's all these people in the city. They're staying strategically outside the city. One, because the city's packed. Two, because there's people inside the city trying to kill Jesus. So going to Bethany, and other texts say that uh, they, would, they were staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, so it's possible that Simon is their father or perhaps he's their neighbor right? Jewish houses weren't that big. Jesus has 12 other grown men with him, uh, probably tight quarters. They were probably staying on the roof of more than one home, right? So be that as it may, that's the house that they're in. They're in a house in Bethany, probably not too far from the house of uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And you can kind of imagine it. Uh, ladies, we'll kind of put this in your context as well. Imagine you're all down in Chattanooga on a women's retreat, and all of a sudden a, a dude just kind of walks in, and breaks open a thing of, of perfume or oil and starts dousing one of you with it. It'd be kind of awkward, right? Men, imagine we're all like at a men's uh, you know, barbecue dinner together, 
and it's, you know, we're in a private room and it's only men. And then all of a sudden a woman walks in and comes over with a bottle of Calvin, very expensive Calvin Klein uh, perfume or uh, cologne rather and dumps it all over one of you. Be super awkward, right? Now that's what happens. Uh, this is spikenard imported from India. The value of this, 300 denarii, translates into about 930 U.S. dollars today, which back in those days could get you a lot more than $930 could get you today. But be that as it may, men, how would you feel if your wife walked in with uh, a bottle of perfume or cologne or whatever it might be that was like $1,000? <laughs> might object, right? Like, uh, you know, ladies, vice versa, right? He walks in with like a a nearly $1,000 tiny little thing of, of cologne. How do you feel about that, right? This is, this is expensive stuff. It's possibly an heirloom. And the word pure here is a Greek word that's usually uh, used to describe people's spiritual faithfulness. So the best guess that scholars and interpreters have is that we should use the word pure here. But the bottom line is, however you translate this word uh, that it, it is in the ESV as pure, is it increases the value. Right, anytime, anytime you're putting something in your body or on your body, right, you want higher purity levels, right? Like you, uh, you know, baseball cards and collector's items, those are the kinds of things where like the misprint and the accuracy can sometimes make things more valuable. But when you're consuming something or putting something on your skin, you want a higher purity count, right? You don't want to buy the stuff that they messed up in the factory. Like we're not really sure what those will do to you if you eat it or, or put it on your skin, right? So higher purity means higher value. And it, this, this ointment, as the ESV says, was in an alabaster jar. An alabaster is a really beautiful, kind of pretty white stone. And this, this flask might have been one piece or two. Scholars don't agree on this. How they would have gotten this ointment uh, inside a container that was one piece, I don't know, but apparently that was possible. But it's also possible that this was a flask with a, another alabaster piece that operated as a lid. But here's the point. She broke it. So regardless of whether it's one piece or two, at the thin part near the neck, it was broken open so it could never be used again. They're definitely never using this ointment again, right? It's not like after she's done, she's like, all right, let's kind of like get the leftovers and like, you know, save it for later. Once you put ointment on someone, it's, it's theirs. It's holy unto them, right? But a two-piece flask or jar could be used again. But what she does by breaking it, she's symbolizing or she's communicating, this is going to serve one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to anoint the body of Christ for his death and burial. Singular purpose. And oftentimes when you would, when you would anoint somebody's body with this kind of ointment or, or really any kind of type of ointment that had a flask or a jar, they would break it and they would leave it with the body in the tomb because it served one special purpose as a way to honor the person that you're anointing. And here's the reaction in the room. The men scold her. Verse 4, you could, you could even translate some of those words as growling. They were, according to R.T. France, intimidating. But Jesus commends her and defends her. Right? These men were big mad, as the kids say these days. But Jesus vows, he says, leave her alone. And then he vows that wherever his victory, remember, that's what the gospel is. He uses the word gospel here. A euangelion is not just some sort of message, but rather it's a message of a general or a king conquering and bringing about victory. And he says that wherever his victory is proclaimed, her action will be remembered. See, this is uh, one of the things that happens when we preach one passage uh, all the way through a, a singular book is that we come across these promises of God 
where he says things like, this person's actions will be remembered. When you neglect certain books of the Bible or you just hop around, you will often miss the passages where, where the Lord makes promises to people that their faithfulness will be remembered by those who read the scriptures. R.T. France says, look, it's no surprise that Jesus has global gospel proclamation in mind. He's clearly looking to the resurrection. Because see, without resurrection, there is no good news. There is no conquest. There is no victory over Satan, over sin, over, over death itself, if there's not a resurrection. Because remember, a gospel, a euangelion, is about victory. Without the resurrection, there is no victory. Well, what about the poor? That's the big conversation piece, the big point of objection. Look, these men have a genuine concern here. Right? They were required by the Torah and by the nature of the feast season to care for the poor. They would even tithe, according to Deuteronomy 15. They would tithe for the sake of taking care of the poor. There would be Israelites coming into town that did not have the ability to provide for their families what was necessary to partake in this feast. So caring for the poor was important. And it seems like what we can piece together, everybody's concern for the poor was genuine, except for Judas's. But Lane points this out, and this is really important to understand. Jesus is the poor man par excellence. He's the poor man par excellence. When God became flesh, when the word took on human form, when he took on a body, he did not become a wealthy man. He did not become a middle-class Messiah. He became poor. The Gospels even remind us, look, foxes have their dens, other animals have their homes, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to even set his head. If you care about the poor, what about Jesus, who forfeited all the riches of glory to become man so that he could die for our sin? And by the way, what good is 300 denarii, about a year's wages for a laborer, what good is that money going to do the poor if they're still living dead in sin? It is far more important for Jesus to die for their sins then they have this, this year's worth of wages in order to be fed. Jesus makes it very clear. Look, the poor matter. There's plenty of time left to take care of them. They will always be with you. Oftentimes, I hear this straw man as a post-millennialist. Uh, people will say, look, you post-mills can't be right because Jesus said the poor will always be with you. And I'll say, what do you think post-millennialism is? It's not the prosperity gospel. It's not some sort of like, pipe dream of everybody becoming bajillionaires and having nice homes before Jesus returns. Like there will still be physical illness and there will still be sin in the world. There will still be the poor will be with us. The golden age hope, the post-millennial hope is that the church will just have, have done something to help the poor. Anyway, that's a little soapbox I had to get on. It just it drives me nuts. The poor are always going to be with us. Care about the poor. You're going to have many chances to do that. But look, this is what he's saying. Guys, I'm here with you now. They just don't seem to get it. He's going to the cross. And after he rises again from the dead, he's not going to be with them much longer, less than two months before he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. The time is ticking, and they need to take advantage of it. How do we move beyond the house? How do we move beyond the events of Jerusalem on this day described in this text? What are the implications to draw out for ourselves and what applications can we make in our own lives? Let me ask you a question. Who is the woman here? You can answer. Can anybody tell? Who's the woman here? Anybody? Yeah, Mark doesn't tell you. John tells us it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mark doesn't. Who's the chief complainant about the waste of this ointment? Anybody know? It's Judas. 
But Mark doesn't tell you that. Does Mark not know? Mark, remember, Mark's getting this from Peter. He was there. You bet Mark knows. So why doesn't he tell us these things? Listen, I think Mark is inviting us by not naming them. He's creating kind of two nameless archetypes. There's two people, kind of people in that house of Jesus. There's people who can't believe what this woman is doing, who can't understand why in the world she would take this jar of ointment worth 300 denarii and anoint Jesus with it. And then there's the woman. Remember who Mark is writing to. He's writing to the church in Rome. They're under incredible persecution. If you're one of the disciples of Jesus at this time, there's these men in Jerusalem plotting with stealth to kill your rabbi, to kill your Messiah, to kill your leader. And if you're a recipient of the gospel of Mark there in the church of Rome living under Nero, what are you facing? You're facing persecution, torture, death. You're given this option, renounce Christ or die. In some sense, I think Mark is holding up these two nameless archetypes and he's saying, Church of Rome, these are the options before you. And guess what? Those are the options for us today. We have the same two options. In our situation, in a fallen, hostile world, we all have an alabaster filled with valuable ointment. And we can pour it out for Jesus or we can spend it on other things. The, the ointment in the alabaster jar is, is somewhat symbolic, I think, for our lives. All of the time, all of the talents, all of the treasures that we have as stewards. There's people who think the king is worthy. And there's people that don't. There's people like Mary who believe that Jesus is worthy of our worship and devotion. And there's people like Judas who don't. In honor of uh, Tim Keller, who used to preach this so well, there is a third category of people. And that's the category of people who believe that they actually do think that Jesus is worthy, but they really don't. So what will you do with your life? What will you do with your alabaster jar? To connect this to more explicitly biblical language, remember, how does Paul talk about his life? It's like a drink offering being poured out for the sake of the church, the sake of the gospel, the sake of Christ. How does he talk about the church and our lives, our very physical bodies in Romans chapter 12? He urges the church, he urges us to live like living and holy sacrifices, offering ourselves up to the Lord. He says this is an act of worship. Isn't this what Mary is doing in this passage? She's taking something of incredible value and she's using it all up on Christ as an act of devotion, an act of worship. And what do we possess that's more valuable than life itself? Nothing. We get one, and it's precious. Church, if we believe that the king is worthy like this woman does, how can we imitate her? These all alliterate. Uh, you're welcome or I'm sorry. I don't know which one to say. If, if it helps you, if it makes you roll your eyes, just you know, stay with me. The first is personal. Notice what Jesus says about her in, in verse 8. She did what she could. She did what she could. Oftentimes, we make following Jesus our act of worship, our, our act of devotion to Christ. We compare ourselves to other people who have different callings, different stations in life. Brother, sister, your call is to do what you can to be faithful to the Lord. You have different time, treasures, and talents than everybody else around you. Do what you can. Stop looking around at other people and say, well, I don't have that gifting or I don't have that. 
that level of, of, of personal financial freedom. Whatever the thing is, stop comparing yourself to other people. Do what you can. J- Jesus doesn't look at her and go, ah, really, just, just ointment worth 300 denarii? You know, Bob around the corner, he has an alabaster jar worth 600 denarii. You couldn't have figured out, come on. He doesn't do that. He commends her because she did what she could do. If Jesus is worthy, we should worship and honor him within our abilities. That's what he's calling us to. You know, as a preacher, preachers do this all the time. They're like, man, I'm just, I'm not good. I'm not as good as the late, great Harry Reader. I'm not as good as, insert the blank, one brother came up to me recently after, uh, you know, during a conversation about, about uh, different situations. You know, it's like we sometimes think that everybody has to be Charles Spurgeon. And there's, he's one of one. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of one. There's only one of those guys in history. We can't all be them. And it's the same thing, not just for teaching, but for individual Christians. If Jesus is worthy, we should worship and honor him within our abilities. Second is practice. Practice devotion to Christ even when it's costly. There was a financial cost for this woman, but there's also a personal cost. She had to endure as she's there, basically humiliating herself, uh, adorning Jesus, playing the fool for the sake of Christ, right? She has to endure the out loud indignation of a room full of men. And if R.T. France is right, growling at her because they're so mad. There is a personal and financial cost. And and I think as the Western world continues to go on the trajectory it's on, we will begin to experience more and more of a great personal cost for following Jesus. Christian, listen, practice devotion to him even if it's costly. The third P is plot. Know the plot. Know the story of Jesus. Pay attention to his word and treasure his teachings. That's what Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, is known for, right? While, while Lazarus is known for being called out of the tomb after three or four days, and Martha is known for being the one who is busy in the kitchen, Mary is known for sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on to every word she could when she was able to listen to his teaching. And therefore, it should be no surprise to us that she knows what time it is in the story. Uh, Bruce Gore, lecturing on this passage, said uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Oftentimes, women know what's going on when men do not. So for all of the talk that the Bible is misogynistic and paints women in a negative light, simply not the case when you read particularly the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark. Luke often paints women as being incredibly faithful and reliable in the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, you see that they often know things that people around them do not. All of these men can't seem to understand that Jesus is about to die. We've seen that three times already in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to die. There's going to be a resurrection. They're like, what are you you talking about? And yet she knows. If Jesus is worthy, we should treasure his word and know his story. One of the reasons why people read headlines as Christians and they panic is because they're more glued to the headlines than they are to the word of God. Fourth P is this presence. Take advantage of the time that you have with Christ. Right? Know what season it is. Here she is, breaking protocol, going in, enjoying the presence of Christ, anointing him for his burial. I think there's a parallel for us uh, with this. You know, Jesus warns them, look, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you're always going to have me. There's a lot of really good activities that we can busy ourselves with 
Church, Monday through Saturday is the day for those. Sunday's the marketplace of the soul. This is the day where Jesus calls us to corporate worship to meet with him. We should take advantage of the Lord's day. He's asked us for one day. Just one day, not one morning. One day to catechize our children, to feast upon the word, to focus on these things. Do you read your Bible and catechize your children and do family worship throughout the week? Absolutely. But he's given us one day to especially focus on the means of grace. Let us take advantage of this time that he's carved out for us. If Jesus is worthy, we should enjoy him to the fullest in the time that he's given to us. Five is politeness. Politeness is cast aside here for the sake of Jesus. She breaks societal protocol left and right. According to scholars, the, the Greek language here, it makes it look like she's not even invited to the party. It's not like she's in the kitchen having prepared the meal for these men and goes, okay, now's my chance. I should slip into that room and anoint him with this ointment for his death. I don't even think she's invited to be there. And yet she knows where Jesus is. She knows what needs to be done. She breaks societal protocol. She's a woman in the first century barging in to a party that's really only men. Why does she do this? Because she placed personal piety, faithfulness over social protocol. If Jesus is worthy, we should be unafraid to break social protocol when necessary. Church, listen. You are called to be kind. Stop being nice. There's a difference. The church has way too many nice guys in it. We need kind people, kind men. Nice people would never do what she did. I'm not telling you to be rude. I'm not telling you to break social norms just for the kick of it. I'm not giving you permission to just go out and break social norms uh, just because. I don't think you have the Christian liberty to do that. But what I am saying is when you find yourself in a situation where for the sake of Christ, the ungodly social norms or even nice, polite social norms need to be broken for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Do it. Do it. The last application here, the last P, pragmatic platitudes and emotional appeals. Judas had a pragmatic platitude for what they could have done with the, the money from selling the ointment. Take care of the poor. It's a good thing, but it's empty and hollow. It's an emotional appeal. What about the poor? Right? But Mary prioritized sacred devotion. Sadly, uh, me and two ruling elders in this room, we just heard this kind of thing from the floor of General Assembly just last week. During the longest debate, there was an appeal from one side to emotion. One guy said, look, consider the headlines. You have a chance if you vote this way, the world will give us good headlines tomorrow. But if you vote this, bad way, this way, we will get bad headlines. It's an appeal to emotion. One of the other brothers even called it out on the assembly floor. You've just heard an appeal to emotion. While some brothers were making this very pragmatic appeal, other men were considering sacred devotion. Other men were arguing from the character and nature of God, arguing from the scriptures. I'm not saying emotions are bad. I'm not saying uh, that there aren't things that tug at our heartstrings and that uh, our compassion is, is bad. I'm simply saying that we must put doxology over practicality. If Jesus is worthy, we should make pragmatism a distant second fiddle to worship. I'm a, I'm a somewhat practical guy. I can be pragmatic. There's nothing wrong with doing things that are practical. But if it comes right down to it, and there's a practical option, and that practical option 
causes us to sacrifice faithfulness and biblical fidelity, we must put practicality, pragmatism on a back burner. We should never sacrifice faithfulness, godliness for the sake of pragmatism. So what will you do with your alabaster jar? Everyone has a life that will be poured out for some God somewhere. Which way will you go? Which Lord will you choose? Will Jesus be viewed by you with disdain and with disappointment? Or will Jesus be deemed worthy of your life? Men, where will you lead your households? I've been flooded with information, infographics, and stats and studies these days from Christians and non-Christians alike showing that when it comes to uh, faithfulness, that how the father goes dictates by and large how the children will go. It's astonishing the impact that you have on your families. And by God's grace, may we go the path of Mary. May we take the route of Joshua who said, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church, King Jesus alone is truly worthy of our utmost devotion and worship. So let us pour out our lives for him and for him alone. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.